They told me I use my mouth good, so I started a podcast. She said she was going to do it, and she's doing it after much talking about, okay, let me be fair, shit talking about the lobster daddy, Jordan Peterson. I decided that it is past time to do a series of podcasts deconstructing his book, The 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And the way I'm going to approach this is through some of the notes that I was taking as I was reading his book. And I want to kind of give a different perspective on chaos. I will say that my inner... Ayn Rand is coming out because I completely reject the premise of the book. I do not think there's an antidote for chaos. I do not think that chaos is something that should be forced into order. I don't believe that it's something that's necessarily always bad, although it is very uncomfortable to experience sometimes. And Peter, and I'm not saying that Peterson completely disagrees with this. We're going to go over some of the finer points in his book. And I'm also not saying I completely disagree with Jordan Peterson. So I think a lot of people have been seeing my posts on social media and they are making a lot of assumptions about what I actually believe when it comes to Jordan Peterson. But I will be using this, these podcasts to highlight what I do agree with him on. And also just kind of give a more critical examination of some of his other points, uh, specifically some of the things that he excludes as well. I want to start off by saying, too, that I think that if his book has helped anyone improve their lives, that's a wonderful thing. I think that if it's given them, you know, some kind of greater purpose in life or caused them to find some kind of meaning, that's a wonderful thing. You know, subjective meaning is very much a part of postmodernism. You find what is meaningful to you and hold on to it. And I think I, you know, disagree that there are objective meanings in life, but we can get into that uh, a little bit later. So what I'm going to do first is dive into the overture, which is the chapter before the first chapter of the book, because I think it's important to look at how this book started and examine some of what Peterson was saying in the overture. So it started off with people asking questions on Quora, and which is a site that uh, you can ask questions on and people will upvote the best answers. He was spending a lot of time on Quora. This was a few years ago. And people asked the question, you know, what are the most valuable things? Which is a very broad question. I mean, value is, is very subjective. But he offered up a very highly upvoted answer, 
which it kind of became the outlines of the 12 Steps for Life. And he wrote a, wrote this list of rules, and a bunch of people really liked it. And so I, I want to say, I do think this is kind of funny that the book started off as something he was doing to distract himself from his job, which was in clinical psychology. Uh, he does admit that in the overture. And I mean, I feel like some of my best work has come out of doing whatever I was doing outside of my whatever my regular job was, you know, especially like when I was serving tables and stuff like that. A lot of stuff that I would do outside of work was very meaningful to me. And this is something that he found very meaningful. And he's very uh, proud of the the amount of upvotes he got, which <laughs> has a fellow person on the internet, I definitely empathize with that. I think it does. You get that little nice little rush of dopamine when you're getting all of those light, likes and hits and upvotes. Um, that's nerdy as shit, though. And I admit it. And I'm okay with it. <laughs> so like, I really do empathize with some of uh, Jordan B. Peterson's kind of nerdiness here. So he, he's bragging in one of the first notes that I highlighted that he had cracked the 2000 upvote barrier. And he believed that he had written a 99.9th percentile answer, which would mean that it's an answer that is extremely broadly applicable to a lot of people. So this is interesting to me, because um, the advice that he gives in the book, again, is an outline, or it follows up from an outline on Quora that he made. And the reason it's so popular is because it makes you feel good to read. He's not saying anything that's particularly new. And this is a major criticism I have of the book is a lot of people are saying, oh, wow, you know, it seems like such common sense. And it's like he's saying stuff I've never heard before, but he's really not. He's saying stuff that's very heavily reinforced in the popular culture. It's not particularly insightful. It's stuff your mother told you. And for some reason, you just didn't care to listen to her. <laughs> and so I, this is, I guess, leads into some of my frustration with this book. Because the overture, by the way, is extremely long. I don't even know why it's – in fact, most of this book is so long and tedious that he could cut half of the verbiage out and I think it would make for a much better book. But who am I to talk? I didn't write a New York Times bestseller. So <laughs> – I'm staying in my lane on that. But yeah, so further on in the overture, he starts going into this Jungian idea of order and chaos being represented in the masculine and feminine forms. So I want to give a little bit of so a lot of his philosophy builds on these archetypes, which the uh, psychologist Carl Jung came up with uh, decades ago. And I think you're probably better off just reading that source material. That would be a whole thing to get into, but you're, you're better off reading that source material. But go back to that because it's, you know, I think better written. And I do kind of disagree with this classification. So, much of Jordan Peterson's ways around criticism is to be purposefully vague and symbolic with his references, while also saying that these things have some objective kind of truth to them because they resonate with so many people. So the idea that chaos is represented by the feminine and order is represented by the masculine is an intuitive kind of archetype that people understand on this kind of deeper primal level. So this doesn't make sense for a few reasons. But one of the first reasons is the dominant culture is so saturated with these archetypes that you see them so often from a very, very early age. So to say that they are intuitively understood as some kind of, you know, objective truth is incorrect. They are subjectively understood as a culturally dominant idea. And because we're fed these messages on a regular basis from the time we're born through adulthood, they see they feel very natural to us. 
And that's okay. There are a lot of things that feel very natural to us. What feels natural in the country that I'm living in, which is the United States, is things that basically come out of patriarchal heteronormative views. And what I mean by that, oh, God, those are some very academic words. So when I am talking about patriarchy, I am meaning a system where men are in the dominant positions of power politically and socially. I don't really think this is debatable. Again, this is just facts. We live under patriarchy in the United States. Pretty much every country in the world lives under a patriarchy. And when I'm talking about patriarchy, I am keeping it defined in this very narrow way. I'm not saying that there's some kind of broader nebulous conspiracy that can't be felt or understood. I'm saying that this is the type of system politically and socially that we live under. And because we live under that system, society shows certain preferences towards forms of masculinity and seeing masculinity as preferable over femininity. You see various examples of femininity being devalued through these cultural norms. For example, it is much more acceptable for a young girl to exhibit tomboyish or boyish seeming behaviors than it is for a young boy to exhibit what's seen as girlish behaviors. Women generally have a little bit more freedom when it comes to gender and sexual expression than males do. I grew up in the Deep South, and this was very much enforced through the churches and through the broader social culture that was influenced by those hardcore puritanical belief structures. I wasn't even raised with religion, and these belief structures fell out onto me, and I was still, they were still heavily ingrained, because this is something people, I think, misunderstand when it comes to terms like patriarchy. If all of your entertainment is centered on the notions of traditional gender norms, if every one of your Movies, for example, has a heterosexual love plot. If every one of your TV shows has a heterosexual love plot, even if it doesn't lead, if, even if it makes no sense to even have in there as a broader plot line, when all of your advertising shows this, when you are told in your schools that this is a n normal way of life, that, you know, it's, it's a mother and father and 2.5 kids, when you have all of these things pushed on you, your entire life, I'm not saying it's always like overhanded. I think things are getting better now, but you can't ignore that influence that it has on your personal belief structures. So the reason this idea of the masculine and feminine as order and chaos feels natural and is appealing to people is because we live in a culture where those ideas are the dominant belief systems. So there's nothing dangerous about what he's saying here, which is what I really want to highlight. This is pretty basic stuff. This isn't really original, and it's not really, I don't know, it's really not anything new. So one of the things he talks a lot about is dominance hierarchies. And we're going to get into the lobster and the dominance hierarchy thing in just a little bit here. But... I want to make the point that just because something is at the top of a dominance hierarchy, for example, in the dominance hierarchy of cultural and social beliefs in the United States, the idea of a binary gendered view and heterosexuality being the preferred and best way of organizing things pretty much sits at the top. Nothing he says in this book is dangerous. Nothing he says is against the norms that already exist and are politically and socially enforced. And when I say politically enforced, yes, I do mean by laws, especially if you look at some of the states in the South regarding and the Midwest regarding abortion and the rights of women that are being threatened under those it, under those political climates. And then also socially, it's reinforced in much of the country outside of heavily populated cities. 
for example. But if you kind of venture out outside of that, and I've done a lot of traveling around the country, and I'm very familiar with this, I'm always asked, you know, for example, if I have a boyfriend, as opposed to, you know, there being an assumption the other way, like, do I have a girlfriend? After I was divorced, I was told that, well, that's the problem with people today is they just don't commit enough to marriage when they make a decision, uh, despite this person not knowing anything about my background or what had happened in my marriage. It's so, so heavily influencing of our of our mindsets. So to kind of go off of one of the notes in that I made in the overture, he says, as the antithesis of symbolically masculine order, it's presented imaginatively as feminine. It's the new and unpredictable suddenly emerging in the midst of commonplace familiar. It is creation and destruction. And he kind of goes into order and chaos being the yin and yang of famous Taoist symbols, two serpents head to tail. Order is the white masculine serpent, which I don't know how a serpent could be seen as masculine, but uh, and then chaos, it's black feminine counterpart. So I want to first talk a little bit. So we know where this idea comes from. Now, what is the accuracy of this metaphor. Now, clearly, it's a metaphor. I'm not supposed to be taking it literally. But he does make the point that this metaphor is broadly appealing because it, it, it feels intrinsically true on some type of deeper level. I'm saying it only feels that way because of cultural conditioning that favors heteronormative ideas. Why don't we take it literally, though? Why don't we do a little bit of a thought experiment and try to figure out how and why the masculine would be associated with order and the feminine would be associated with chaos? I don't really understand why this has been kind of seen as the symbols that have come out of this. Because on an intuitive level, to me, it seems like it would be the opposite. Now follow me on this thought experiment here. If we look at statistics, just the numbers of what's going on with the world, and I just did a podcast episode about this with Dr. Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy of Sex and Science Hour, we did a whole long episode all around this topic of men and violence. If you just look at the shared numbers... It's not even a contest over who creates the majority of violence in the world. Yes, the world, talking about the entire world when it comes to rapes, murders, war, war crimes, torture, all of these things are carried out and instructed to be carried out in most, in most cases by men. Men are the root cause of a lot of violence, all of the violence. Pretty much over we're talking over 90 percent of the violence is created by men. And we'll get into the causes of that. I did go kind of into the causes of it on the last podcast. And we're going to get further into the causes of it later on in uh, these follow up podcasts, because we also have a very different opinion. Me and Jordan Peterson about why there are these causes of male violence, but it cannot be disputed that the majority of violence, vast majority of violence, is committed by men. So why is it that men are not seen as the dragons of chaos? Clearly, they are the ones creating the most amount of visible chaos in the world. And of course, that's not to say that women can't be violent. That's not what I'm saying. And it's dishonest if you are trying to say that that is my argument. My listeners are smart enough to understand the points that I'm trying to make, and I refuse to be taken out of context, and a lot of people do this anyway with the stuff that, and with the points that I make on social media and things like that. So 
Dr. Peterson and I also share this in common. Our things are taken out of taken out of context and argued against dishonestly. So I'm not saying that women can never do bad things. Yes, women do bad things too. But guess what? They're not doing the majority of bad things. And this is just facts over feelings. Facts do not care about your feelings. They don't, statistics don't care about whether or not you think that like women are just as violent because history has not really bared that out. So I, I this goes back to Young again. I'm not necessarily saying that Peterson is coming up with this idea. It's not an original idea. And it's it's coming kind of coming off of the idea again. He mentioned the Tao Te Ching, which I've read several times. That there needs to be a balance to the universe. That there needs to be a yin and yang. That there needs to be order and chaos. And there needs to be a masculine and feminine. And reality doesn't really exist along binaries. So the the premise that we need to escape from chaos by using order is reductive. We don't live in a binary system. We don't live in a situation where you have a, a nice, neat solution for every problem. If we had that, then life would be a lot easier. But life is hard. Life is suffering, which is something that he mentions in the book, and he does get into some existential philosophers and some Eastern philosophers who have come up with those ideas, the, the idea that life is suffering, and his prescription to the suffering is to find a way to organize your life on a personal level, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But I completely reject the idea that metaphorically, even, there are these binaries and we have to strive towards balance. Do things balance out eventually? I don't know. Maybe. I'm certainly hoping for that to be the case. I think that I've experienced a lot of chaos in my life at statistic a statistically improbable amount of chaos for one person to experience. I would say I'm a bit of an outlier when it comes to the amount of really weird traumatic things that have happened to me, considering that I, you know, I live in a first world country and am by no means like doing the worst out of everyone here or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm still able to, you know, have roofs over my head and access to food and things like that. So yeah, my life isn't the worst ever, but I have experienced a pretty significant amount of trauma. And what's helped me cope is not the idea that I have to force some type of order into my life, but rather that I need to find a way to be okay with the chaos because it's not really ever going to stop. And there are a lot of different ways that you can cope with it. Now, Peterson's approach is pretty straightforward. That's why it's so popular. It's, again, not saying anything that's super new. In fact, it's doing so well because it reinforces what the majority of people already believe when it comes to gender norms and when it comes to traditional values. I'm going to move a little bit forward in the overture to a very much highlighted section that, <laughs> again, so the idea of objective reality is interesting to me. I think we can look at statistics and I think we can look at trends and we can look at social norms and see how that influences our thoughts. And I think it can they can also be used to paint a portrait of what is really going on on a level that is outside of our perspective. And we'll get into the whole postmodern, can anything be known, what can be known kind of thing, because, uh, God, postmodernism is such a massive topic. And a video that I have to highly recommend is the latest ContraPoints video on Jordan Peterson, where she ex she very thoroughly goes into postmodernism and breaks down everything that it falls under that umbrella, which is somewhat sometimes contradictory, same as with other types of ideologies like feminism and capitalism and things like that. These are umbrella terms for ideas 
often which are in conflict with one another. So I, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. I highly recommend it. That's a video I would like to make, but instead I'm going to do a podcast series going in chapter by chapter because I think it'll be really useful for people who prefer podcasts too. But yeah, check that video out. I'll link to it in the show notes. But here's the highlight. This got, as the time I'm reading it, 2,508 highlighters. And I want to attack this notion. So this is a quote. In the West, we have been withdrawing from our traditional religion and even nation-centered cultures, particularly to decrease the danger of group conflict. But we are increasingly falling prey to the desperation of meaninglessness and that there is no improvement at all. So that's his point. And again, if we look at broader social trends, if we look at statistics from independent groups, from government groups, from just a lot of different <laughs> different groups all kind of saying the same thing, the kind of point that you are able to get from this research is that things are actually improving gradually in very positive ways. For example, even though men do commit the majority of violence, overall, violent crime is decreasing. Steven Pinker has also covered this idea. Now, I don't necessarily agree with Steven Pinker's reasons for why violence is decreasing, but it it is. This is just a fact, again. This is just an objective thing that's happening. So this feeling that people are falling prey to meaninglessness and we're living in this increasingly chaotic world is really just a feeling. And it's a feeling that's strongly felt. I don't want to dismiss anyone's feelings on this topic. A lot of my conservative friends especially very strongly feel this to be true. They feel that their entire way of life is under attack. And when you feel under attack, you, you know, you feel backed up against the wall. You're inclined to lash out. And that's what I kind of view a lot of this book as, is lashing out against forces that Peterson hasn't taken the time to understand and that he feels threatened by because progress in some directions looks to some people like regression. So conservatives have gotten comfortable with their way of life being the dominant one, occupying the top place of the dominance hierarchy for such a long time that any kind of progression away from that feels like their rights are being taken away, even though we can't really see any tangible evidence for this. For example, there aren't being a whole lot of laws passed right now in the United States that are restricting the rights of traditional people. You are still able and encouraged to find a heterosexual life partner and have children and buy a house and all this. In fact, what we're seeing, if you kind of look at other trends, especially what the media is talking about, it's actually terrifying to some people that the millennial generation is not falling into these social norms. They're not buying houses. They're not having kids. They're not getting married. And people are viewing this as even very progressive outlets. I mean, I'm reading this stuff on things like MSNBC and CNN and stuff like that. They're, they're decrying the, uh, whatever they perceive as selfishness of the millennial generation. And I think it's rather silly because the actions of these traditional based generations are the things that have caused the economic situation that millennials have had to cope with and survive under and that have set up an economy where millennials kind of have gotten the short end of the stick. And I'll link to more articles about that in the show notes as well. But we have very good reasons for not falling into these dominant social norms, mostly because they're not really serving us. And that's okay. It's okay to say that different configurations of partnerships or, you know, lifestyles fit for different people. That's very much a cornerstone of individualism. 
there is not a one size fits all for everyone, which I, I would hope that Peterson would be able to understand. He's he's trying to say that these traditional cultural norms that have been rammed down everyone's throats for hundreds of years now are liberating in some kind of way, but they're very clearly not. There's very clear damage that's been done to people who fall outside of these lifestyle preferences. And I just I just can't get on board with this idea that that the quote that I mentioned is reflective of any kind of dominant movement. I mean, society has been radicalized in bursts here and there maybe, but Generally, if you go on any major news site, you're going to see all of these traditional norms reinforced in almost every single headline you read. Anything that's outside of this is seen as aberrant and not normal and bad even. But the thing is, outside of, you know, a few laws here and there, for example, saying that businesses can't discriminate against LGBTQ people anymore... And, you know, that's a whole other debate. But, you know, outside of these very small little, I don't know, examples here and there, you just don't really see these things consuming the dominant culture. In fact, what we're seeing is a reactionary backlash to any kind of progress in a sort of leftist direction, especially under the current administration. So... Are we doing these things, to take the first part of that quote, are we withdrawing from these tradition, religion, and nation-centered cultures to decrease the danger of group conflict? He says partly to decrease the danger of group conflict. Is that the real reason why we're withdrawing from this? Could it be that rather than we're just trying to force everyone to get along, that a lot of people have realized that this heteronormative system under patriarchy does not serve their needs and is actively dangerous to their identity, to who they are, to their version of human thriving. Look at the amount of kids that are kicked out of their homes onto the streets still in 2018 for being gay or transgender or somehow other, you know, or, or different in some other kind of way. Again, these people are still in the minority. Like, as a queer person, I know that I'm still in the minority. I don't want people to be like me. I don't want to force law. I don't want to pass laws forcing them to, you know, respect my sexual and gender identities. I don't want any of that. I just want to be left alone and not have a bunch of assumptions made about me based on my appearance and based on my identities. I don't get to live in this postmodern world where everyone's just not stepping on anyone's toes because they're afraid of group conflict and we're all falling prey to the desperation of meaninglessness. I would love that world. I would love to experience that like one day in my life. I'd love to see this like, you know, evil matriarchy that people talk about actually existing. But it doesn't because that's not the reality we live in tough titties. <laughs> so I reject this notion. It's not I, I wouldn't even say partly to decrease the danger of group conflict. I don't even think that's a part of it. I think people are just becoming more aware that people are different from them and need different things to successfully thrive in society. And so we're changing our norms. I mean, if you look at just I remember even just 10 years ago, reading about a lot of issues of like sexual assault and sexual harassment, and it was so commonplace and so almost boring to read about all of these things coming out and then being dismissed. Like the, the reflexive notion was to dismiss any accusations of wrongdoing made by women about men. Ten years later, we have something called the Me Too movement, which is finally highlighting this. Again, 2008 was not that long ago. It was not that long ago at all. Two years ago, same, very similar thing. 
People have been talking about what a fucking pervert Woody Allen is forever. He's made movies about it. Like, it's not debatable. And yet, and yet, even with this tiny, tiny, tiny amount of progress of like, oh, wait, maybe we should believe the women because they were right all along. There's been such a reactionary backlash to it because it challenges the dominant culture. And that is why there's such a backlash to it. But does this does do these slight pieces of progress mean we're to quote his second part? increasingly falling prey to the desperation of meaninglessness? I don't think it does. Maybe. It's a very vague, broad kind of thing to say. Isn't it just as desperate to try to find meaning in everything? I don't know that believing in a kind of objective meaninglessness is necessarily a bad thing. I don't know that it's something to run from. And I view it as a very desperate thing to be always looking for meaning and always needing to find something bigger to believe in than yourself. I don't discount that that gives people a lot of comfort And I think any comfort we can find from this existence is generally a good thing, as long as it's not hurting other people. And to me, I find comfort in this lack of objective meaning, because that means that I can make up my own meaning. It means that I'm not held down by the constructs of other people. It means that... I don't have to continuously be striving to force my round hole to fit into a square peg that someone else built. It means I can make my own holes to stuff with things. Okay, now it's just getting weird, but you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) We're all just trying to stuff things in our holes. And for some people, that means knowing that there's an objective meaning that they can just kind of fall right into that someone else told them is good for them. For a lot of us other people, it means that we have to carve out our own meaning, that we have to carve out our own frontiers. And that, to me, is a beautiful thing. It's scary. I don't discount that. And Peterson goes into this. It is terribly scary if you're trying to forge your own path outside of the dominant culture because the dominant culture is going to tell you you're wrong at every single pass his his ideas are not new they're not interesting in any kind of deeper way the reason this book is a bestseller is because these ideas are already popular and i cannot point that out enough don't get to be a bestseller by necessarily telling people what they don't want to hear. You become a bestseller by telling them what they do want to hear. And that's exactly what he's doing. While trying to pretend that his speech is being censored and that he is being persecuted, and which, by the way, this is very much a traditionalist conservative thing that they like to do. They like to say they're being persecuted when in reality, their views and opinions express the dominant culture. But they're not. This guy makes, I was reading somewhere, he makes something like $80,000 on Patreon for telling people what already exists in the dominant culture, like basically telling them what they want to hear, I guess. Now, I don't want to be too glib with things, but it is, it is, I guess, frustrating to me that like they, him and other people on the right continue to try to play the victim when they're not victims. So clearly they have huge platforms. They're making tens of thousands, if not millions of dollars every year on saying how persecuted they are and saying that everyone should be forced into the model of existence that already exists, that already hurts so many people who do not conform to these boring ass conventions, quite frankly. 
And when I say hurt, I don't mean hurt their feelings. I mean hurt their livelihoods. I mean when kids are kicked out of their homes prematurely by abusive parents because children aren't seen as having rights, because gay people aren't seen as being able to have a sense of like fulfillment and identity that is their own because it's seen as disgusting or, you know, an aberration from the norm. I saw this so much growing up in the South. Christians saying, Bible-believing Baptists saying that they're being persecuted, that the world is against them. And it's great if you want to rile up people for your cause and because there's nothing better than feeling like you're being persecuted in some kind of way regardless of whether or not you actually are these are the same people by the way that are bombing the abortion clinic and killing doctors they're not being persecuted the entire place where i come from is so dominated by the judeo-christian ideology that you can't be different without someone pointing it out. And they will, whether subtly or not so subtly. And this is true for a lot of the country. And having this disconnect, I mean, I don't want to get into political things and why Trump won and stuff like that, because my analysis of that is that could be a whole episode in itself. And, you know, I do come from a different class system. So I also don't empathize with white liberals either. I don't empathize with these kind of boring carceral progressives. I've never really identified with that approach to things. But that is in no way the majority opinion held. So he's saying this, he, this has been a very highlighted section, but literally every part of it is not true if you observe reality. If you just do some reading outside of your perspective, he says the very last part of it in that quote is, that is no improvement at all. If we're falling prey to the desperation of meaninglessness, it's no improvement at all. (sighs) Sure, there can be desperation and meaninglessness. But, I mean, to say that that is that's no improvement. Improvement from what? Improvement from decades, centuries of war and violence in the name of greater meaning, in the name of something bigger than ourselves, whether it's God, the church, or nation. In fact, everything he says at the very beginning have caused so much of the violence and has led to so much of the rejection of meaning outright. I mean, if you spend enough time reading history and really understanding how nation states and tradition and religion-centered cultures have decreased the net freedom of so many people, especially the people who believe in these doctrines. I'm not talking about the people who don't believe in it. I'm not talking about the cynics and the critics. I'm talking about the people who wholeheartedly believe these things and how it causes them to repress who they could actually be and repress their full potential. That's what I'm talking about. When you look at the destruction that these things have caused people for generations. And then you look into the studies on generational trauma and how that continues to destroy people's lives. I don't see what's good about these structures. His argument throughout much of the book is these structures are good because they exist. And I'm saying that's so far from the truth that they must be criticized at every point, that the criticizing and the destruction of these norms are what is leading to broader human thriving. The dismantling of religion from the state, the dismantling of religion in general. People were killed for questioning these religions. People were killed for being homosexual. One of, you know, my heroes, Alan Turing, was heavily censored. He was a genius 
but because he was a homosexual, he was not allowed to just exist and be free. In 1952, he was castrated as opposed to being imprisoned and ended up dying uh, two years later, probably from suicide. It was cyanide poisoning. This is a person who contributed so much to human progress and understanding only to be sidelined legally by the state for something that didn't affect anyone else's life, for his own private beliefs, for not even beliefs, for his own orientation. Things are improving. Things are improving because we're questioning these traditions. And the more we can question these traditions, the freer people who never believed in these traditions or couldn't fall into or were rejected by these traditions can thrive. But even more so, the more people who do believe in these dominant social customs can thrive because they can unshackle their mind from these constructs, from these boxes that were made by other people. And so that's what a lot of these podcasts are going to be about, are going to be about the liberatory nature of chaos, the liberatory nature of questioning these norms. And that's where we've seen some of the most human progress. And it's, again, it's not happening at breakneck speed. This has taken, these things have taken centuries to hash out. And we are hearing more about it because people aren't being killed for questioning these things anymore. It wasn't a long time ago that Stonewall happened, that the MOVE incident happened in Philadelphia, that the civil rights movement happened. All of these things were not a long time ago when you look at the whole context of history that we're moving past that just now in 2018 in some ways is, I mean, it's taken us long enough, hasn't it? But that doesn't mean that these cultures are necessarily under threat just because they're being questioned and criticized. I mean, these people would have you think they're being persecuted for people asking questions. And again, if you look back throughout history, the Catholic Church has tried to do this a bunch of times. Uh, so is so is the Protestant churches. So have a lot of other different religions and uh, nation states saying, "Oh, they're persecuted." I'm I'm making the broader point here <laughs> that dominant forces playing the victim and acting as if they are persecuted can lead to a lot of atrocities and do lead to the exact opposite of human thriving. So we'll be examining this a little bit more. I, I wanted to focus on that highlighted section because I think that is really the crux of the overture. And I also wanted to really point out Basically, the inaccuracy of the metaphor of the dragon of chaos represented by the feminine and then the order, the solution, the antidote to that dragon of chaos being represented by the masculine. Because, I mean, if you look at kind of reality, the reverse would make more sense. Um, and he does explain this more. He's going to get into the Bible and stuff, too, uh, in further chapters that kind of support the point that he's trying to make. Well, he thinks that it supports the point he's trying to make. But I'm saying I reject the premises, and this is why. I reject binaries. I reject the idea that these things are as intuitive as he says they are just because he says they are without providing any kind of proof. Intuition does come from within, but it's not without being influenced socially. And this is a really important thing to consider when you are looking at the points he's making and the premises he's operating off of. We don't have preferences in a vacuum. 
And until we can detach ourselves enough from the dominant culture and through questioning it, through critically thinking about it, then we're not going to be able to connect with a better intuitive understanding of society and intuitive understanding of ourselves. So I wanted to cover the overture for this episode. I'm wanting to keep these a little bit on the shorter side so they're, you know, more easily... I guess, digestible for people, because holy moly, this book is tedious and long and it's boring. And like, I want it to be better. You know, like, we'll, we'll get to some stuff I agree with him about, because uh, I think he could be making his points better without being such a little nasty asshole to some people. But we're going to get to that in later episodes. I wanted to first attack the overture and the I, the whole premise of masculine and feminine and that kind of completely socially constructed binary and then also the idea that we're somehow falling prey to this terrible meaninglessness and all of that. I reject those points. I think I explained myself pretty clearly as to why. And for the next episode, we're going to be covering rule one. I hope you're ready for that. I know Maybe people think I should have started in rule one, but we needed to go through the overture because the overture sets the whole tone of the book. And if you don't attack those fundamental premises, then you're going to have a hard time criticizing the rest of the book. We'll get into chapter one or rule one. I'm sorry, which I'm not very much of a rules person, if you can tell by my other podcast, but we'll get into rule one in the next podcast, which will be about lobsters, which, <laughs> which is going to be really fun. So that's my take on the overture. Stay tuned for rule one next time. And I'm going to be doing a whole series. We're going to be going through every chapter and kind of pointing out things I agree with, things I disagree with, and kind of bolstering my broader point that chaos isn't something to have an antidote for, but perhaps something to embrace. So thank you for listening. This has been Iconosass. You can shoot me mail at iconosass at gmail.com. You can follow me on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and on Patreon, which if you are a patron, you get access to all sorts of juicy tidbits that are not going to be public. So thanks for listening, and I will see you next time.